At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. here at Gospel Community Church, and this morning is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. As many of you know, we've been traveling through the Gospel of Luke, uh, line by line, verse by verse. This actually makes our 64th study together, Uh, so over a year we've been studying this great book together. Over the last two weeks, we have been seated at the table with our Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. He has instituted this Lord's Supper. He has taken this great Passover feast, and, and with his disciples, he has taken a piece of bread and explained to them that that piece of bread would be broken, just like his body would be broken. And he, he took a cup, and it was filled with wine, and he said, this, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, and it's going to be poured out and he explains all of this to them but but we saw last week the the lord's supper ends the 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 supper is over and as it ends there's this discourse between them and to say that the discourse was disappointing would be a massive understatement They, they begin to bicker and argue about who's the greatest peter makes this declaration lord i'm ready to go and die with you and and the lord says peter you're you're gonna deny me and then he tries to warn them. Remember the warning? He, he, he's trying to, to prepare them because they are about to enter one of the most difficult times in all of their spiritual life. I mean, just massive spiritual attack is about to come on the disciples. And so he's, he's encouraging them to get ready. You guys, you guys got to get ready. You need, you need a spiritual sword. And they miss the whole thing. And they, they think he's talking about a literal sword. And, and they say, we got to have two swords. And Jesus says, I'm done with this conversation. And so this morning... We're going to leave the Last Supper. We're going to leave that upper room where they sat together and shared a meal. And we're going to move to this new location, this, this Mount of Olives, this, this Garden of Gethsemane is where we will find ourselves today with the Lord Jesus. And I want you to know that, that this week I have struggled and wrestled with this text just to understand the fullness of its meaning. I've struggled to even be able to explain the complexities of of what is happening here. I, I want you to know that there are mysterious things happening in this garden that human language cannot explain, nor can human minds fully understand the interplay of what's happening here with Jesus. There is a divine will nature inside of Christ, tension with, there's also a human will and nature inside of Christ that are in tension with one another. How can we understand this church family? How, how can we really plumb the depths of what's going on internally with Christ? This is what the theologians call the hypostatic union. That is Jesus being one person, yet possessing two natures. How can we understand the depths of this? We might be able to 
to, to say what it is, but to really understand the intricacies of how this is playing out is, is beyond us. And not only that, not only are we discussing the hypostatic union and seeing Jesus in his internal struggle with his human nature and his divine nature, that's on display for us. But there's also this interplay with Christ, the Son, and the Father as Jesus in his human will and nature struggles to put that will and nature under the submission of God the Father. How can we understand this, church family? It is too mysterious for us to even understand. The exchange between God the Father and God the Son. Here's what we're going to see. Jesus, with his spiritual eyes, will see a cup, a cup filled with the wrath of God, a black, frothy, putrid liquid which he must drink down to the last drop, and his human will does not want to drink it, but then he aligns his human will under the divine will of the Father who can understand the depths. Beyond all the mysteries that are in this text today, there is one thing that is glaringly obvious. Beyond the depths of this interplay between the human will of Jesus and his divine will, beyond the interplay and the exchange between the divine Father and the Son, all those complexities set aside, there's one thing that we can know. There's one thing that's clear, and here it is, church family. Write this down. The purposes of God will come to pass. The purposes of God. There's one thing that we can know. We can't know the depths of what's really going on in this garden. But the one thing that we can know is that the purposes of God will come to pass. Jesus does align himself with the Father and becomes a willing sacrifice. Though he is betrayed and arrested in our text today, that was the will of God. And so we will struggle to understand the depths of Jesus' agony in a real sense. No one will ever fully understand the depths of Jesus' agony here in this garden. But what we can know, come hell or high water, the purposes of God will come to pass. The purposes of God came to pass on the cross with the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son. And by the will of God, the purposes of God are coming to pass, not just back then, but even today in our own lives, every day, praise him, praise him. My prayer today is that as we go through this text, that it would cultivate in us. This is what I've discovered as I've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this text today, focusing on the agony of Christ. It has cultivated in me a deep sense of gratitude. A deep sense of gratitude for what Jesus did in that garden as he wept, as he sweat great drops of blood. That was for us. And this text should cultivate in us a deep sense of gratitude. It should also cultivate in us a deep sense of peace. A deep sense of peace. Are, are you here this morning and under stress and difficulty and out there it feels like your life is out of control? Well, in here in this text we can find peace. Why? Because the purposes of God come to pass. No matter the situation, no matter how dark and bleak it looks. I mean, the, the evil forces and evil men are going to combine their evil forces. They're going to trap Jesus and surround Jesus. I mean, it, it can't get any more bleak. Yet the purposes of God are coming to pass. And so there's great peace for us in this text. So I want us to organize our thoughts around basically two main points. There, there's two sections of text. 
And so let's organize our thoughts this morning around these two points. First, prayer and agony. Prayer and agony. We're going to see Jesus in prayer. Jesus um, begging the disciples to pray. And then we're going to see him in agony. Next, we'll see question and command. A question. The question comes, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then Jesus gives a command as, as basically a riot almost erupts there with the soldiers and the chief priests that have come to arrest Jesus and his disciples begin to fight and he gives this command, no more of this. So that's what we'll see today, prayer and agony, a question and command. Let's begin with prayer and agony in verse 39, a heavy, weighty text today, but I need your help. I need your help today. Amen. Amen. Here we go. Verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. We learn from the other gospel accounts that Jesus is going to the Mount of Olives, and on the Mount of Olives there is a walled garden filled with olive trees, and that walled garden filled with those olive trees is known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means uh, olive press. And so he's there, and, and this was a, a place that he would frequent, a place that he would go. We, we see him going there on multiple occasions uh, for, for rest, for, um, for fellowship with, with just the disciples as he's, as he's during the day preaching to the large crowds and healing people. And, and so to retreat, to get away, they've been going to this garden. And as he's been in the temple preaching day by day before the Passover, He's now uh, got in this pattern, this habit of going back to this particular place, which means the one who is going to betray him at this very moment as they're leaving the upper room, headed to this garden, Judas knows where Jesus is going. And we can also assume that Jesus knows that Judas knows where they're going. And yet he goes there anyway. They head to this garden. Look at verse 40. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray, pray, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Obviously, this exhortation fits with the Lord's prayer where when he, in teaching them to pray, he said, uh, he, he told them, uh, lead us, pray this way, lead us not into temptation. And so here he's telling them again, pray that you might not enter into temptation. The disciples are about to enter into one of the most difficult times in their entire lives. That They have, for the last three years, put it all on the line. They left their businesses. They left their homes. They've left everything. They've put themselves in, in tremendous danger to follow this man. And in just a few short hours, he's going to be killed and crucified on a cross. And so it's going to look like it was all for nothing. That's what it's going to look like to them. And so the temptation for them then is going to be to walk away from the faith, to, to really believe that it was all for nothing and to leave. And so Jesus is saying, pray that you won't enter into that type of temptation to where you'll walk away from the faith. Pray. You need to pray. That's what Jesus is communicating to them. Now, what is said next, the fullness and the depth of the complexities, we'll never understand. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down. I want, I want us to see him in the garden. I want, your, I, want, I want our mind's eye 
to be drawn in to see the Savior there. It says here that he knelt down. If we read the other accounts, we know that not only did Jesus kneel down to pray, but he actually collapsed over after kneeling. The the standard uh, mode of prayer in that day was to stand and to hold your hands extended and lift your eyes up to heaven. That's the way that you were supposed to pray. But Jesus here, as he begins this prayer, he kneels down and he collapses. Look at what he says. It, it, it's And saying, listen how he begins his prayer. Father, isn't this the way that he taught the disciples to pray? By saying, Father, Jesus has had an eternal abiding relationship with the Father from eternity past. When Jesus speaks to the Father, he's not speaking to him as if he's some far-off God that doesn't care. He speaks to him as a loving Father, this, this deep abiding relationship that, again, our human minds simply struggle to understand the depth of their love and connection. So he begins like this, Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Is Jesus fully divine? Yes, 100%. There was never a time where Jesus did not exist. When Jesus is is there in the Trinitarian Godhead, he is existing with the Spirit, with the Father from eternity past. He's fully God. And he's also fully man. One person two natures. And here we're seeing his human nature on display. Jesus is a flesh and blood man who does not want to experience torture. That's why he's asking for this cup to be taken away. He does not want to be beaten and scourged. Jesus does not want to carry a a, a rough-hewn Roman crossbar on his bloody and beaten back to his place of execution. He does not want six to eight-inch spikes driven in his hands and driven into his feet. He doesn't want the torture. But beyond that, Jesus doesn't want to experience the embarrassment of the cross. In just a few moments, they're they're going to arrest him, and he's going to be falsely accused. How embarrassing is that? After that, they're, they're going to literally strip him naked in front of a crowd. Can you imagine the embarrassment as they mock him and beat him? He doesn't want the torture. He doesn't want the embarrassment. He doesn't want the abandonment. All the things that I just described, he's going to have to face all of that alone. This is why he's asking for this this cup to be taken away. But the thing that Jesus is agonizing over more than the torture, more than the embarrassment, more than the abandonment, he does not want to take onto himself the sins of the world because he will have to experience spiritual forsakenness from the Father. The Father will turn his face away, and this eternal relationship that he has had with the Father will be broken in some way that we cannot understand. And that is what he does not want to experience. We know that the Bible tells us this. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5. Or this, the Son of God bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.4. He became accursed for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, Galatians 3. Which is why in the midst of all of it, as he hangs on the tree, quoting the Psalms, he says, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. It's the forsakenness that he is going to experience, which is causing him the most agony. This is what we're discovering about. This is why, this is why he speaks of this language, the cup. Have you ever thought about this? Why, why is he asking for the cup? Well, because in the Old Testament, the cup is always a picture of God's wrath. We, we could look to Isaiah uh, five, uh, 51, we could look to Jeremiah 25 or Psalm 78 or Ezekiel 23 and see that the cup is constantly referred to as the cup of the wrath of God. And this is what Jesus is asking, that this not take place. He is looking into this cup that he must drink and he's saying, I don't want to drink this. I don't want to experience the torture, the abandonment, the embarrassment, and I don't want to experience the forsakenness is what Jesus is saying. Can you see him there in the garden? Can you see him collapsed? Can you see the tears running down Jesus' face? Can you see his clothes beginning to be drenched with sweat and the agony that he's experienced. Can you see him there? If you can see him there in his agony, what he has to say next will change your heart forever. Nevertheless, wow, wow. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The most painful decision Jesus makes is his decision to submit to the Father's redemptive will. What is happening when Jesus is praying this prayer is that he is taking his human will, his human nature, and he is submitting it under the will of the Father. He's saying, if you will not take this cup from me, Jesus is saying, I will then do the necessary work in my heart to become a willing sacrifice. That's what Jesus is experiencing here. This shows Jesus' humanity. He has a desire for God's will to be different, yet he is doing the work necessary to submit himself under the will of the Father. Don't you know, we have a great high priest who understands us. Have you ever wanted God's will to be different? Have you ever wanted God's plan to change? And yet it doesn't, and you find yourself in that dark night of the soul trying to submit yourself under a plan that God has for you that you're wishing that plan wasn't for you. Well, that's what Jesus is experiencing here. If you're taking notes, even when we desire something different, the purposes of God will come to pass. Even when we desire something different. God, I want this situation to work out differently. God, I wish this thing wouldn't happen. I want this to happen instead of this. Those desires that we have in ourselves, even though we have those desires, God's purposes are going to come to pass no matter what. And so the best thing that we can do is follow the example of our Lord Jesus and submit our will underneath the will of the Father. This is what Jesus is showing us. Now, to, to fully submit and to make it through this intense agony, Jesus needs help. Look at verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, 
strengthening him. As a, as a human being, Jesus requires assistance from God just like everyone else. Notice that the angel does not get him out of this mess, but he gives him the strength to get through this mess. The, the angel doesn't fly him to some far off place so that he does not have to face the cross, but he gives him the strength that he needs as the army approaches, as the chief priests approach, as his betrayer is approaching, as he's going to be arrested and dragged away. He's going to need strength to get through all of that. And so God the Father sends an angel to give him the strength that he needs to get through this whole ordeal. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, being in agony, can, can I tell you, as, as we read the gospel accounts, here's what you're going to discover, no matter which one it is. All of the gospel accounts, as we read the gospel accounts, you will discover that the most intense description of Jesus' suffering is not at Golgotha, but it is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. As a side note here, some biblical scholars believe that Jesus here is under sweating blood. It's a condition known as hematidrosis. Under intense stress, what happens is, is the blood vessels that surround your sweat glands literally burst and erupt. And not only are you pouring out sweat from your body, but you're also pouring out blood. And many biblical scholars believe this is exactly uh, what is happening to Jesus because of his stress, because of his agony. He's literally sweating blood. Other theologians will focus more on the word like there, if you see it, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, meaning that he was sweating so profusely it looked like he had a wound that was pouring out blood. It, Either way, either way you want to go with it, the, the point is for us to see his agony. This is showing us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' soul is being crucified. And on the hill called Calvary, that's where his body was crucified. Okay, the section began with Jesus calling the disciples to prayer, and it happens the same way. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you might not enter into temptation. In Jesus's darkest moment, he is still caring for these men. He's still pouring out himself for these men. He's still loving these men, even though he buys in his darkest hour. The, the tragedy here is that instead of these disciples staying by his side, instead of them praying for him and supporting him and lifting him up, they are asleep. The, the text here says that they are sleeping for sorrow. Luke is the only one that includes this detail. And so it seems that though these are the dim-witted disciples, it, it seems as if the reality of what is next is slowly begin to creep in on them. They're looking around and, and knowing that one of them is going to betray Christ. And, and Judas is strangely missing. There's been all this talk of death and dying and him going and, and being persecuted. And it seems like 
that is really starting to make sense to them and they're coming to knowledge of what is going about what is going to happen and under the emotional stress of the knowledge of what is going to happen to Christ and their ministry and what what is in store for them in their future that stress they cannot handle have you ever been there before just so incredibly stressed and wrecked because of the woes of life and the anxiety of the future and your only escape, the only peace that you can find is sleep. Well, that's where these men are. That's where these men are. And so while we understand that they're sleeping for sorrow, they have still failed Christ. They weren't there for him. They they didn't pray for him. They didn't even pray for themselves. They went to sleep. While Jesus stays awake and and pushes through the emotional pain and agony and and spends his time in prayer, the disciples are a total failure. If you're taking notes, even when God's people fail, the purposes of God will come to pass. Even when God's people fail, when you fail, when you drop the ball, when you do the wrong thing, when you take the wrong turn, it's not going to stop the purposes of God. The failure of the disciples is there on display. And apparently, God the Father knew that the disciples were not going to for Jesus and lift up Jesus and strengthen Jesus, which is precisely why he sent the angel. He knew they were going to fail. He knew they were going to go to sleep. Can't count on those guys. That's That's why he sends the angel. Okay, second point. We'll spend less time on this, God willing. Less time on this point. Okay questions and a command look at verse 47 together heavy text today i know speaking with me okay while he was still speaking there came a crowd and the man called judas one of the 12 was leading them we know in this crowd uh, from what we're about to learn and from the other gospel accounts which tell us this same account guards and mob in this crowd there are chief priests scribe elders there are temple guards and there are also roman soldiers and they're carrying swords and they have clubs and there are lanterns lit and and they are converging on this garden of Gethsemane in mass. Look at what it says. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Remember it's dark. Remember that they're carrying these torches. There needed to be some type of obvious signal so they did not arrest the wrong man. This is a really crucial point that they've got Judas to betray Jesus. And so making a mistake here that they can't afford that. They need a clear and definite sign. And the tragedy of this is that Judas picks the sign of a kiss. That in that culture, that sign of brotherly love and affection and deep friendship, which which makes the kiss all the more a slap in the face to Jesus. Look at verse 48 together. Here's the question that we see. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This is the question that he asked. And here Jesus is is pointing him to his own sin, even by virtue of asking him this question. He's pointing him to his own sin, even here, after after he's betrayed him and led this band of people to where they are. Jesus here is, in a way, offering him another route of escape. He's he's saying, don't you, you would betray me with a kiss? Judas, don't you see the road you're going down? Judas, you're in danger here. This is what Jesus 
is, is saying to him. Jesus wants him to see that he is not simply betraying a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, but he's betraying, did you see, the Son of Man. He's explaining to him that he's betraying God himself, giving him yet another opportunity, which sadly he does not take. And when those around him heard and saw what would follow, they're getting the picture here they are. They, they finally trapped Jesus. They finally surrounded Jesus. There's temple guards. There's Roman soldiers, the chief priests, the elders. The, they're all there to get him, and they see this is about to happen. And they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Come on, guys. <laughs> they, were, they were at the dinner. Jesus is explaining to them, okay, guys, you need to get spiritually ready here. You need a spiritual sword. And they're like, we've got two swords. They're thinking back to the dinner, and, and then, then there's the soldiers, and they're about to arrest Jesus, and they're thinking, sword time. It's sword time, guys. We've been waiting on this. I mean, what, what a ridiculous thing for them to do in this moment, T to think that they're going to fight for an eternal heavenly kingdom, just the 11 of them and only two swords. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. <laughs> now, if we had time, we would go back to John uh, chapter 18, which tells us, you guessed it, which disciple is this? Of course, it's Peter. Peter, you know, it's like there's only two swords, right? Peter's going to get one. So he's got the sword. Is it time for us to, without ear or a response from the Lord, jumps out, Cutting off a guy's ear, showing that he needs to get back to fishing. He's not a swordsman. <laughs> now, we know that, again, it was Peter who steps out to strike uh, this guy with a sword. Uh, remember at the dinner, he said that he was ready to go and die with Jesus, yet he wouldn't even stay awake to pray with him. But then now, when it's time to fight, like he's got the sword, he's, he's ready to go. Now, here is the command from Jesus. But Jesus said, I'm in verse 51, but Jesus said, no more of this. This is incredible. And he touched his ear and healed him. This struck me this week. I want you to think about this. I want you to see, I want you to see Jesus in the garden this morning. From this moment on, Jesus' hands are going to be bound. He's going to be arrested. His hands tied and, and they're going to bounce him from false trial to false trial until his hands again are secured to the cross. From this point on, his hands are bound. The last act that Jesus does with his free hands is to heal a man that was there to arrest him. Jesus says, in Luke 6, 35, Jesus had told his disciples that they should love their enemies and do good for him. And now he exemplifies that very command by healing the, the servant of the high priest named Malchus. He heals this man. Verse 52 and 53, we're almost done. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. He, he's calling out their hypocrisy. He's calling out their cowardice. They, they could have arrested him at any time. 
I mean, he was right there in front of them. Like all week long, leading up to the Passover, he's been in the temple, he's been preaching, they've been there, he's been there. But under the cover of darkness is when they decide to do this. Look at what he says. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is Jesus pointing out the fact that these men uh, have come in the cover of darkness to trap him, to arrest him. And really what's happening is what is in their heart, darkness, is being shown literally in the night. And, and they've come during this time. He's pointing out their cowardice. He's pointing out the darkness in their own hearts. And he's pointing out the ridiculousness uh, of them coming with, with swords and clubs and here, here he is. Here's Jesus in the garden. Can you see him? Here's another thing I want us to see this morning if you're taking notes. Even when the situation looks bad, the purposes of God will come to pass. The thing situation, he, he is in a moment of intense agony, struggling with his divine nature and his human nature. He's sweating blood. He then is attacked by, by a large crowd of temple guards and Roman soldiers and the chief priests. They, they've all, he's trapped. He's trapped. Where can he go? What can he do? He's going to be arrested. They're going to kill him. The situation looks terrible. As a matter of fact, one of the disciples, one of the disciples, one of the ones that were supposed to be close to him, has betrayed him and betrayed him in this shameful way by betraying him with a kiss. I mean, how, how much worse can this get? And yet... And yet this is the plan of God. All the evil forces have finally joined forces, and they have isolated and surrounded Christ. But though they are conspiring against Jesus, and they are free to kill Jesus, watch this, they are not free to determine the consequences of killing him. Namely, the consequences of killing Christ is going to be the remission of sin and the salvation of the people of God. They think that the consequences of killing Jesus is just getting rid of him. Boy, are they wrong. And so in the same way, church family, I, I don't know what situation you walked in here with this morning. I know, I know many of your situations. I know the pain. I know that especially around this time of year, there's a deep sadness and sorrow from our families of origin, the, the wounds and the scars that are there. I know that Marriage difficulties get amplified around this time of year. I know that we're all super busy. I know that we're all super exhausted. I know that things are stressful at work. I don't know all of your situations, but, but, but I imagine if we all had the courage, we would say yes and amen to everything I just listed. But can I, can I tell you from the authority of God's word in, in this text today that even when the situation looks bad, the purposes of God will come to pass. Listen to me, I, I'm not saying that it won't be painful. That's not what I mean. It was clearly painful for Jesus as he experienced this. It was clearly painful for the disciples as, as they followed Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, I'm not promising you that everything's going to be easy. Jesus says, I promise you suffering. That's what the Bible says. So we've got to get rid of this silly notion, this silly idea that if we just really follow the Lord, there'll be no suffering in our life. There'll be no pain. There'll be no difficult situations. 
Everything will be just perfect if we just obey, if we just have enough faith, then everything will be fine. That's ridiculous. That is not what's modeled for us in the Bible at all. What's modeled for us in the Bible is that faithful pursuit of God will lead to suffering, yet he strengthens you to get you through those times of suffering, and on the other side of the cross, there will be glory. That's the model of what we see in in the word of God. What I want us to discover this morning is that if there is no Gethsemane, then there is no Calvary. And if there is no cross, then there is no remission of sin. And if there is no remission of sin, then there is only hell for us. And so this morning, we've spent our time in the Garden of Gethsemane. But back in the book of Genesis, there was another garden. That would be the Garden of Eden. In that garden, our first father, Adam, he, and so our, Jesus said, our first father, Adam, said, not your will, but mine be done. And so our first father, Adam, then ate the fruit. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Adam rejected God's will, and it was the beginning of the destruction of everything. But here in this garden, Jesus submits his will underneath the will of the Father, and it is the beginning of the restoration of all things. And so the battle of good and evil that was lost in the Garden of Eden is regained here in the Garden of Gethsemane because Jesus is our greater Adam. And so my prayer today, again, is that this text would cultivate a deep sense of gratitude by seeing him in the garden. I want you to see him in the garden. I want you to see Jesus collapsed in agony, praying, praying that his human will would be submitted under the Father. He's doing that for you. He's experiencing that agony in the garden for you. So I pray we would see him in the, that our Christ and that would cultivate this, this deep sense of gratitude that our Christ, our Savior, has gone through that for us. He went through that darkness. He experienced the forsakenness on the cross so that we could experience the forgiveness and eternal life. I want our hearts to be cultivated with a sense of gratitude this morning. In addition, I want to cultivate a deep sense of peace by seeing that the purposes of God will come to pass. A deep sense of peace that the purposes of God will come to pass. So whether it be emotional turmoil within Jesus himself, the purposes of God will come to pass. Unsupportive disciples that won't stay awake to pray, the purposes of God will come to pass. Violent disciples trying to fight for an earthly kingdom instead of a heavenly kingdom, well, the purposes of God will come to pass. Evil men betraying and and, and conspiring against Jesus, the purposes of God will come to pass. Jesus arrested and taken away to die on the cross, the purposes of God. God will come to pass. Can you see him? Can you see him in the garden? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, that our hearts would be drawn to see you in the garden. As you wept, as you prayed, as you sweat great drops of blood. Draw our hearts and our minds to that picture of you, oh God. God, let our hearts this morning be filled with gratitude, cultivate gratitude in our hearts that you were forsaken for us so that we would not have to be forsaken. Oh God, give us in this season of busyness, 
Give us a sense of peace, knowing that no matter what, your purposes will come to pass and that your purposes are always good, are always for your glory and for our good. Let us see you in the garden this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.